With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, this is the entirely artificial intro into the second half of my conversation with Matt Continetti. He is not here while I'm recording this, just so I can be fully transparent with people. But we uh, wanted to continue. We wanted to break this into two different episodes. So um, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time. Last time, I don't know where that was because we don't know where. We, I don't know where we're going to break this thing into two. But uh, here we go with part two of my conversation with Matt Continetti on the right, the Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. All right, so let's uh, just because we should check the box on the civil rights stuff. Um, it's painful to read the Goldwater stuff about civil rights because Goldwater, um, like you know, for a guy whose you know, appeal was in his heart, you know, he's right. In your heart, you know, he's right had such a convoluted position on civil rights, right? And so, like, I think his position was intellectually and philosophically defensible, but politically and therefore morally indefensible. So why don't, why don't you talk about that um, and what, because you say elsewhere that the Goldwater defeats was, wasn't a ceiling, it was a floor for the modern conservative movement. Right, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the characters I loved writing about and researching the most was Barry Goldwater. Yeah. Uh, he has this irascible charm to him that uh, I, I just fell for. Um, my, my favorite just story real quick is, you know, there's this weird phenomenon in American politics where kind of like cranky old men attract youthful, vibrant followings. Mm-hmm, and we mm-hmm. see this with Ron Paul. We see with Bernie Sanders. We saw it with Barry Goldwater. Yeah. And so you had the Goldwater girls and they'd follow him around. And Hillary Clinton was one. <laughs> Hillary Clinton was one. And uh, all this Goldwater merch that you can still find on eBay. And there was even the Goldwater, which was oh, a this, yeah. cocktail. <laughs> and at one point, someone gave uh, Barry this to drink. And he spit it out in front of them and said, I wouldn't taste this. It's worse than gin. You know, he, he was a bourbon. No, no, no. This tastes like piss. I yeah. wouldn't even drink it yeah, with well, gin. Yeah, I was doing the G-rated yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, he was a bourbon drinker. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I couldn't help uh, liking Barry Goldwater. Um, and the truth is, as you say, personally, he was not a bigot. Right. Uh, he helped to segregate the Senate cafeteria. He helped launch the Arizona NAACP. He believed in equality. But for these um, constitutional reasons, he felt that the the federal government had no place in schooling because schools are not mentioned in the Constitution and had no place in employment and and, uh, association, the the public accommodations clauses of the civil rights Act of 1964. So he had a devil of a time explaining his position to people. Um, in fact, he enlisted Robert Bork in to help formulate some of his arguments, uh, which came back to haunt Bork in 87. And uh, making it all the more complicated still was the 1964 Republican Party platform pledged the party's nominee to implementing the Civil Rights Act, which had been many, it had been kind of the one of the fathers of that right, Civil Rights Act was Everett Dirksen, right. the Republican uh, minority leader in the Senate, right? Um, so this kind of was one of the many pretzels. Civil rights was one of the many pretzels that Goldwater tied himself uh, into during the campaign, the other being his association with the fringe, with the John Birch Society. 
Um, and then the third one being his position on using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the reasons he went down to a spectacular defeat. However, as you mentioned, a lot of liberals were puzzled. And in fact, I love this. There's a New York Times written article written in after the, a couple of weeks after the election in November of 64 that says, uh, despite everything, rightists excited by Goldwater right. phenomenon. Buckley's quoted and a few other activists are quoted. And the argument they made is like, look, until 1964, we were just some people with, uh, you know, a weekly newsletter and human events, a biweekly magazine, National Review. You had the Young American for Freedom, a bunch of college kids. We didn't know that, in fact, there were millions of us right. out there. And that's where you get the bumper sticker that was very popular at the, among conservatives at the time. That was, you know, 26 million people can't be wrong, right? <laughs> Even though LBJ had gotten many more millions <laughs> right. of votes. It's like, okay, 26 million people, that's a start, right? right? And so they took kind of solace uh, in Goldwater's defeat, that they had found a floor for American conservatism upon which they could build. And very quickly they did. So we've discussed Buckley's mayoral run in 65. And then the year after that, 66, Reagan wins his first term in a landslide. Uh, as governor of California. Yeah, yeah. so I, again, I apologize because I'm doing some of this stuff out of yeah, order. Sure. Um, but um, this brings us back to to sort of Nixon and, and um, the quote unquote Southern strategy, right? Because and I find this very frustrating when you hear you know the sort of the liberal narrative about the Southern strategy and about Goldwater. Goldwater basically only wins in the solid South. That's right, the deep and, South. And um, uh, and so you have a passage. Um, it's funny because like. There are a whole bunch of places in the book where um, I have personal connections. I work for Ben Wattenberg. Ben Wattenberg comes up in here. Um, you mentioned at the beginning, this is a total tangent, um, you know, three major Austrian economists come out, and they're not all equally major, but one is Hayek, super big. Another one is von Mises, also big. Um, and then the third you mentioned in passing was Gottfried Habler, of course, who went to AEI. When I started at AEI, he was still at AEI. <laughs> and Gottfried Habler, I believe his seminal work was a contemporaneous criticism of the Smoot Hawley bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he was still at AEI. And it's like he's an old dude. Um, but um, anyway, so like some of these fights, because I was so enmeshed in Ben stuff, um, I have a lot of familiarity with. And you quote Kevin Phillips, someone who I've never been a fan of. Um, who was a Nixon aide. Um, and uh, you write, in 1969, Phillips's manuscript was published as the emerging, emerging Republican majority. Quote, far from being, this is him writing, uh, far from being the tenuous and unmeaningful victory suggested by critical observers, it began, quote, the election of Richard M. Nixon as president of the United States in November 1968 bespoke the end of the New Deal Democratic hegemony and the beginning of a new era in American politics. Then you go on to write, several hundred pages of excruciating detailed election analysis followed. For the Republican majority to last, Phillips argued, the party would have to retain the 57% of the electorate that voted against Hubert Humphrey. The Wallace supporter, he wrote, was the key to this new majority. Buchanan convinced Nixon that the Wallace supporters were up for grabs. Nixon pursued these disaffected working class voters in what became known somewhat misleadingly as the Southern strategy. He thus broadened the Republican Party's appeal and incorporated groups into his coalition that changed the nature of conservatism. Okay, so first, why misleading? Well, because in many ways, the Southern strategy was aimed at the North. Mm-hmm. It was aimed at the voters that Buckley had kind of stumbled upon, these um, working class ethnic white voters, right. uh, typically, you know, the descendants of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, right? Some of whom voted pretty well for Wallace, though. Yeah, and <laughs> some of whose descendants are sitting at this table with you. Uh, and they, they, you know, what Wallace was surprised as right. early as 1964, that he, when he would run for president and uh, make these arguments, he'd get cheers in the North. Yeah. Okay. So that's why I say the Southern strategy is somewhat misleading and that it was a national strategy. The issues on which they were going to try to get the Wallace vote and attach it to the Republican vote were aimed at the entire country, not just the South. And in particular, people forget for the emerging Republican majority, Phillips is saying that it's not just that the electorate's moving to the South, it's also the West. Mm -hmm. So the same ongoing movement of the American population 
uh, he's to the south and to the west, he's identifying as well. So it's a national in scope. But what's it trying to do? Well, people, um, uh, you know, people have reductive views of everything. And they tend to think, when they think George Wallace, they think him in front of the uh, school door, mm-hmm. um, screaming segregation now, segregation forever. Um, by the time of the late 60s, and certainly by the time of the early 1970s, Wallace has dropped the explicit racism in defense of segregation. I mean, segregation was, you know, um, it was going away. De jure over, right? Mm-hmm. It was legal. Um, instead, he had brought on all of these anti-establishment ideas and attitudes, saying there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, saying that pointy heads are taking over the country and telling your children where to go to school. The nature of the civil rights debate had changed from uh, do blacks have the right to be equal under the law to does that formal equality need to translate into substantive equality, which would require a much enlarged government in order to make sure that every school has an equal proportion of students um, that would require a lar- much larger redistribution of resources that would require affirmative action in employment and contracting. And on those issues, these new issues, uh, the, the, there was uh, much more dissent in the country and much m- more of a willingness to embrace politicians who were critical of busing, who were critical of redistribution, and who were critical of affirmative action. Um, this is the Southern strategy. Taking those issues, emphasizing them, uh, and picking up the same rhetorical targets as Wallace in terms of the media, in terms of the professors, the anti-war movement. Um, and it, it did work. Uh, they, were, uh, they were able to get a, a huge victory in 72. Yeah, so like, again, because I was doing this out of order, the reason why I wanted to bring that up is that part of my frustration is, and this will, this will feed into some of my pushback at the end, but uh, part of my frustration with, I get, the, I get the Southern strategy argument, right? I mean, I get, and it was, as you say, it was also a Sunbelt argument and it was about Northern unmeltable ethnics as our, as our neocon brethren would say. Um, but if you actually look at what Nixon did, as I was referring to earlier, policy-wise, it would make more sense to call it a, um, the welfare state strategy, right? Because he actually used, in, in many ways, if Eisenhower was a Me Too Republican for not killing the New Deal, Nixon was in many ways a, a Me Too Republican for, for expanding essentially the great society. Mm-hmm. And again, this is one of my frustrations is that the right doesn't give him grief of this because he had the right enemies. It's very analogous to Donald Trump who would, you know, do all sorts of crony capitalist things and talk about how we're not going to touch Social Security and do all this kind of stuff. But because he had the right enemies, a lot of doctrinaire conservatives, formerly doctrinaire conservatives, um, give him, gave him a pass on all of those kinds of things. And um, and so Nixon's approach, you know, contrary to sort of the liberal narrative you get in school had much less to do with race and much more to do with like, oh, the hard hats and the working class non-college educated guys from the FDR coalition are starting to spin off. Let's go after them and, and give them actual government, you know, funded policies. And he also did, you know, I used to have a poster in my office at AEI. Um, it was a great poster. I should bring it back in as Nixon sitting on the steps of like the Lincoln Memorial or something with a little blonde kid with a hearing aid and he's talking to him and it's bragging about for the first time in a half century or whatever, we're spending more on domestic programs than we are on defense. Mm -hmm. And it has all of these sort of, um, little cartoons about his affirmative action programs and about his welfare programs and it's about his, you know, various subsidies that he is offering and, and helps for industry and whatnot. Um, and that kind of not only gets memory hold by conservatives, it gets memory hold by liberals. Yeah. Um, and it's a very frustrating thing for me. Well, I, I think it, some of it is just overshadowed in the narrative by, uh, one Vietnam yeah, and kind of Nixon's escalate to deescalate strategy, right? So Nixon's reelect was in, in 72. It was, he had 
he was moving toward the end of the Vietnam War, right? right. Peace um, with honor. Peace with honor. That had required uh, an escalation of the war in the early part of his administration, which triggered, to, to use a contemporary word, uh, the anti-war movement and the youth movement uh, uh, and, and really broke the, the liberal establishment, which had been kind of, you know, they had gotten us into Vietnam. So part of them were still for the war. Right. But when Nixon expanded it, they Im- immediately switched into opposition. Another, um, I think a lot of them switched because it was finally they had an excuse to do it. Right. Well, right. it was easy because you know, the bad guys there doing right. it. Yeah. But certainly when he, you know, escalated the bombing and um, expanded the war into Cambodia, that was the, that, that yeah. was the, the, the reasons they gave. Another was he did stress this idea of law and order, which really Ronald Reagan had used um, during his first gubernatorial campaign to say that. Um, that rioting, that disruptions on campus needed to be opposed and you needed to have a kind of strong response to them. Um, and that, that played into his, uh, to his appeal uh, as well. And then finally, the busing issue, you know, which I mentioned before, was a big deal. Yeah. It was a big deal during this time period. And in fact, um, you know, it's often forgotten, majorities of black parents uh, opposed busing. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was transracial in the kind of the popular... Uh, unease with it. Um, and indeed, a, uh, a, a Senate, a Delaware city councilman uh, who ran for Senate in 1972 was also anti-busing. And now he's the president of the United States. Right. And that, as we were reminded by his vice president <laughs> in 2019, <laughs> That's in right. a very ostentatious way. Let's talk for a second about Reagan. I, I guess say one of the remarkable things about the book is that did something I didn't think it was possible, which is to make me like Reagan more. <laughs> um, and um, I, I don't love the current, I, first of all, I shouldn't say current, um, but like over the last decade or so, some forms of the cult of Reagan bother me. Um, but one of the things you're very good about is, first of all, explaining that Reagan was a fully formed, had, had politically realized who he was and what he believed at, his, at a remarkably young age and how that served him well. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't, you, why don't you make your case rather than me make regurgitate it? Well, I came across um, Reagan's testimony to HUAC in uh, 1947. Uh, House Un-American Activities Committee. Right. Um, not the McCarthy Committee. Mm-hmm. So I always... If I tell my students, if you make that mistake, F, right. it's the one thing I want you to learn. Huack and McCarthy, different. In any case, uh, Reagan, as president of the Screen Actors Guild, talked to the House on american Activities Committee in 47 and gave an interview to um, a Hollywood gossip columnist afterward. And it was just amazing to me, the quotes from that interview, where he talked about how um, uh, every, every, it doesn't matter uh, the nature of tyranny, whether it's you know, Soviet or whether it's government, um, the individual has the right to find his or her own way. Um, and uh, talking about the uniqueness of America, the, con- the consistency between that quote and Reagan's um, final public appearance uh, at the RNC uh, before the RNC in 1992, it was extremely striking. Um, I think a few things about Reagan. The first is uh, he was really old um, by the time he became president. <laughs> he was born in 1911. Yeah, yeah. So Reagan had memory. Reagan was an adult, a legal adult, by the time of FDR's revolution. Mm-hmm. So he remembered what America was like prior to the New Deal. And I think that factored in his view of America and also of its possibilities, where he grew up at a very lowly circumstances in Dixon, Illinois, with his father, an alcoholic, you know, and a shoe salesman. And his mother, a pretty remarkable individual, um, uh, active in the school, active in the, the theater troupe, also um, extremely active in the church and the school and the theater troupe are related to the church. Um, and I think is the theology of her church, which definitely influenced Reagan's view about um, human agency and the possibility of every individual life. He, um, he, he, however, 
he's a so he cast his first vote for president in 1932 and supports FDR four times. Right. Right. Because his dad was an FDR supporter who really liked FDR's uh support for the little guy mm-hmm. and that was also kind of ingrained in reagan by the time he becomes an adult um what my my go-to fact factoid here is that you know reagan finally changes his party registration in 1962 from democrat to republican so he's 51 years old mm-hmm. when he becomes a republican and in fact he had been tempted to do it in 1960 um but nixon being the cynic that Nixon was thought it would be better that he could Reagan could lead Democrats for Nixon right. in 1960. So he's like, put that off for a couple <laughs> years before you become a Republican. So he he waited. Uh, he had met William F. Buckley um, pretty around that time in the early 1960s. He had already subscribed to National Review, Human Events. His basic worldview never really changed, and it had to do with um, American exceptionalism, the importance of the individual, um, and the the possibilities in the future. He was always thinking toward the future, which, as I say in the book, made him an unusual type of conservative mm-hmm. because he wasn't really looking back to the past always. He was much more interested in what would come if we embraced um, individual freedom and, uh, and the possibilities of civil society rather than government direction. Yeah, it's also very weird that he... You know, I mean, and I learned this from Hayward's book. You know, he never really stopped calling himself an FDR Democrat. He liked FDR, right? Um, and yet, the conservative movement is born of opposition to FDR. He did, and um, I know this because of my first book. There was a significant controversy in '80, um, I think, before the election, where he had said stuff about how. There were some people in FDR's brain trust who admired fascism, which I can, and even though John Patrick Diggins, who wrote a book about uh, fascism and it, you know, and the view of fascism in America, uh, John Patrick Diggins weirdly said there was no basis to it when there's all sorts of evidence in his book <laughs> to the contrary. Um, but, uh, um, um, but that's a weird thing for. Reagan to have said, given that he supported FDR four times, you know, (laughs) and so I've never been able to sort of figure out that contradiction about that one anecdote, but also more broadly, um, his politics, his policies were, I think, fair to say anti-New Deal, and yet he was emotionally still fond of, at least of FDR. I mean, how do you square those things? Uh, I think he kind of had in his head, uh, a picture of FDR as FDR ran in 1932 mm-hmm. and also FDR as war leader and FDR as communicator. And so he often tried to say that, well, you know, uh, actually the same way that many people talk about Reagan, you know, FDR may have gone down the wrong path because of the people around him, you know, right, uh, right, he right. followed the wrong people. Um, he never shied away from his, support for FDR. And I think that's important for a few reasons. One is FDR was his political model, mm-hmm. the model of the president. It, beginning with A Time for Choosing, the speech that Gold, that Reagan delivers on behalf of Goldwater on national TV uh, in the last week of the 1964 campaign, he's using phrases that he lifts from FDR. Mm-hmm. Rendezvous with destiny. Right. You and I. Uh, FDR is always talking in the um, singular. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I'm talking directly to you. And as FDR was to radio, Reagan was to television. Mm-hmm. And he just had that ability. Um, he's also taking on this coalitional aspect of, of of Roosevelt. He's saying that you know I I was a FDR Democrat, but now I've moved to the right, mm-hmm. and it's okay for you too, right? I'm talking to as he says in the new um, Republican Party in the 1970s, the speech to CPAC, he says, I'm not just, in fact, he even says it in a time for choosing. He goes, I'm not just talking to Republicans here. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to independents and I'm even talking to Democrats. So it's a very, it's um, broadcasting. It's not narrow casting. 
And then um, Reagan does say somewhere that uh, even though uh, he was he was formed as a conservative, um, mainly I think for foreign policy reasons um, and 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 kind of opposition to communism in the post FDR eras, and really in the fifties is when he starts adopting a lot of free market uh, economics. Um, it's the it's the it's the great society where he thinks things went right went wrong and so like many of the neoconservatives reagan is not really defining himself against the new deal as much as lbj's expansion of the new deal in the great society after 1964 um, and so that i think gave um a lot of people who were you know didn't want to mess with social security um but didn't like some of uh, the great society's um, uh, effects, uh, permission to 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 join the the Reagan Revolution. Um, all right, so let's let's back up a big picture of this for just a second. Um, now, one of the points you make several times in several different ways is um, that a lot of the previous new rights, let's call them that way, or not even all the new rights, but the different factions within conservatism that, but I don't know if you say it outright, you have one, you have one good line somewhere, I can't remember where, where you're talking about how one of the big problems with being with the Southern agrarians is a lot of people just didn't want to be Southerners, yeah. you know, <laughs> which is like def definitionally limiting your appeal, right? Um, but isn't there sort of a, a larger lesson from the story that you tell, which is that whenever conservatism or frankly liberalism or progressivism tips over from constructive critic of an existing moment or set of policies to actually affirmatively disliking the country itself, it runs aground. And we see this with lots of different versions of, 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 of conservatism in the past. We obviously see it with lots of different versions of left-wingism. Um, and one of the great things about Reagan was that he actually communicated something I think is like weirdly controversial in American politics, that this is a pretty awesome country, you know, <laughs> that he likes this country. Um, right. um, like talk a little bit about like the, the, the battle on the right to hold off this sort of pinched more cranky anti-Americanism and where do you think it's going today? Um, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm concerned where it's going today. Uh, uh, I, I think the test case for this is um, the new left of the uh, 1960s and then it's more, um, even more radical expressions and, you know, it, uh, organizations like the Weather Underground. Mm -hmm. People forget just the political violence of yeah. the late 1960s, early 70s that was situated primarily on the left. And I think one reason why Reagan became president was, uh, and Nixon was elected to two terms, uh, was public disgust at the movement of liberals uh, uh, to the left or the kind of surrender of liberals to the new left. Mm -hmm. And um, this became a big problem for the Democratic Party. It took 20 years for them really to kind of dig out from under it. Um, I th the, the right has always been tempted by similar things, uh, conspiracy theories, um, a criticism, criticism of government that turns into kind of an, an anti-government anti um, right. ideology in the sense that not just we need a smaller government, but like the regime. Let's like tear down the government now, right? right? right. <laughs> you know, that's the, uh, um, and I, you, and then finally, um, another theme in the book is the right is often drawn toward figures who present themselves as strong men and who are able to get it done. And it might be messy. Mm -hmm. and we might have to, uh, you know, go beyond the Constitution to do it. Um, but, you know, these are, emergencies and we have to take on this task. Um, well, I see all three of those trends on the right today. And, um, I don't know, I don't know where they'll go. I mean, um, there, there had been, 
leaders and institutions in the past who were able to uh, cabin off these tendencies and also to um, rise above them. Another thing that makes Ronald Reagan unique was that every type of conservative pretty much saw something to like in him. Mm -hmm. But he didn't really change his, um, his principles, his fundamental principles. He emphasized different issues at different times in his political career. There's no question about that. But he had the ability to make people think that he was on their side. So my lesson from this is that leadership really counts. Mm -hmm. Also in the person of Buckley, who we discussed. Um, just Buckley's affect and his sense of humor was able to disarm a lot of the worst tendencies on his own side. So I think there's a leadership problem uh, in the right today uh, among conservatives today that is um, exacerbated by the changes in media and institutions that are allowing these, uh, in my view, negative tendencies to to grow. Yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, remnant listeners are not shocked to find that I agree with you on all that. I do think coming out of reading the book that one of the more optimistic takeaways from it is that historically, at least, you know, you have all these sort of foreshadowing events, you know, the launch of Triumph magazine. Uh, we didn't even get into the neocon versus paleocon spats about the National Endowment for Humanities, which, you know, I, I think if you read Adrian Vermeule recently, he basically just sounds like Mel Bradford bitching that he doesn't get better, you know, more respect and better sinecure positions, which is a really weird complaint from a tenured professor at Harvard, Harvard Law. Um, he writes for the New York Times and the Atlantic. Yeah. And or, um, you know, they recently had this fascinating uh American conservatives sponsored this emergency meeting um, to deal with Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine. And the emergency wasn't Putin's invasion. It wasn't our response to Putin's invasion. <laughs> the emergency was, oh no, these events are lending support for the neocons who like, I don't know. Do you, I don't know. I don't think you call yourself a neocon. They're like literally like who's left that calls themselves a neocon these days. There's certainly none in Republican leadership. They're not in Democratic leadership. Um, I mean, I guess there's John Podoritz. I mean, I can come up with a few people. Yeah, but... I mean, uh, you know, it depends on who I'm around. But yeah, yeah no, I'll yeah. call myself one. I'm, from time I, to time. I'm, I'm definitely neocon adjacent. I mean, I grew up at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute. But, um, uh, you know, we've had this argument before, not <laughs> argument, discussion about how I think that, and, and believe me, if I thought you got the neocon stuff wrong, I would have brought it up because it's, as you know, one of my white whales is how people screw around with the word neocon. Um, but uh, so much of these fights on the right really boils down to, you know, I, I know I'm obsessed with, you know, the Italian elite uh, school of elitism and, and Pareto and Mosca and these guys. But like... Um, it's it's a strategy for getting jobs and prominence and displacing people who are they see as ahead of you in the in the queue, and you know a big chunk of the paleo quote unquote paleocon complaints about neocons was that they were getting better jobs in the Reagan administration and um uh and the good thing is is that to the extent those guys who whatever the out whatever the new right is to the extent they weaponize their arguments as an indictment of the regime or an indictment of America writ large, you know they're not going to go very far politically. And so they're going to probably either die out or they're going to soften their positions and get subsumed into the larger conservative movement. You know, um, most of those 1970s new right guys just become, you know, establishmentarianisms of their own kind, right? They kind of, yeah, blend into the scenery in Washington, D.C. and that fascinating conservative species, the anti-Washington Washingtonian, right? right? They, they, they become that. Um, I'll, one of the, oh, one, one, one thing, Cleta yeah. Mitchell, you know, who is a huge Trump supporter, um, um, in my personal experience around her, a pretty nasty person. Um, but, uh, she, you know, rails against, inside the beltway people and the lobbyist class and all of these kinds of things. And she had, she's attacked Kevin Williamson. And as, as my friend Kevin Williamson points out, 
she literally wrote the guide to Washington lobbying. I mean, she's just a power lawyer who abs who absorbs this rhetoric to sort of delegitimize her political opponents. Yeah, if you, you, have, if you don't you, have to respond to her. Well, if you attack the Beltway, you really should just like find a house, you know, in Great Falls <laughs> or Potomac, you know, so you're not inside it. That's you know? right. You're just, That's just, just outside. Just a pro tip, as my friends would say. The um, one of the main intellectual inspirations of this latest new right is the National Review editor, James Burnham. Mm hmm. Uh, who's I talk about in the right and I've written uh, extensively about outside the book. Um, and Burnham, you know, actually makes this point. He used to take an annual trip with his wife. They drive around the country and then he would write about it in National Review. Mm -hmm. And these quite lovely essays that are travelogues. And in one of them, in the midst of the, all the turmoil in the country in the late 60s, early 70s, he says, you know, the thing about America is you read the papers you look at the economic statistics, you look at our geopolitical position, it's all coming apart. But then you actually go out into the country. And this is a really nice country. Yeah. And the people are all nice. They're getting along somehow. And it all works. And America just keeps on chugging down that track. Or I, I'm actually, I think I'm mixing metaphors. That the train metaphor is from Tom Wolfe, mm -hmm. who said it much later. But I think uh, Burnham used a steamship memoir, mm -hmm. uh, me metaphor that the ship just keeps on plowing through these rough seas. And so uh, one of the reasons why a reader of the right might emerge optimistic or hopeful about the future is that we've seen all of this before. Right. And America survived. And the truth is conservatism survived. And sure, you integrate different aspects uh, of what the latest thing is. Um, but as soon as the either side turns away from America, I think you're absolutely right. I think they're consigning themselves to public repudiation. Because yeah, most people don't want to vote for someone who hates their country because most Americans actually like their country. Exactly. Um, and not just Americans. People are trying to get in. All, <laughs> we're, we got, <laughs> all we, the we time. Got, we got guy yeah, exactly, in here right. Now, you know? yeah. I mean, um, no, there's a great line you have in the book, which I'd forgotten from Irving Kristol, praise be upon him. Um, your, we should point out to listeners, your grandfather-in-law? Yeah, I don't think that's an actual category <laughs> he's my wife's grandfather this is the way i would put it fair enough yeah um where he had some left-wing students saying you you don't know hell unless you grew up in scarsdale yeah <laughs> you know and Irving's like scarsdale's actually pretty nice that's the whole point <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> all right so all right now now for the vicious counter <laughs> okay um as you take out your brass knuckles that's right um guy lock the door um so, uh, and some of this, I, I will grant you, is sort of my own baggage. Um, but as we've talked about before, um, when I was working on my first book, everyone told me, oh, you got to go look at the old right. You got to read up on the old right. And then you go look at the old right, and it is just a hot mess of idiosyncratic people, cranks. I mean, including my beloved Albert J. Nock, who you invoke several times in the book and the remnant even more times. Um, and these are just weird cats, right? And, um, and so part of, part of my problem is, is that I find that the, the start date is a little problematic for me because it's, the categories are much looser in part because there weren't institutional, there weren't institutions of conservatism that were explicitly conservative. There were conservative institutions, but that's a different thing, right? Mm -hmm. But more broadly, um, I, I want your responses. So like the, a lot of the things that um, you describe as attributes of the right um, in not just the 1920s, but in the 1930s um, uh, are, I would argue, are less ne necessarily, are not necessarily right wing, but just simply American. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Like uh, um, racism was an American problem, right? It wasn't a problem of the right. And part of the, my problem is, is, is it, it's, and I don't think you would dispute this, but by focusing so clearly on the right and its sort of racism issues, um, uh, it leaves the impression that if you, weren't right-wing, you didn't have racism issues, right? Um, and I'm not saying that that's your position. I'm saying that one could draw that impression. Um, 
And, you know, the Democrats, as we sort of alluded to a couple of times, had bigger problems with racism than the Republicans did for quite a long time. Um, and I think that part of the problem when I was trying to figure out what constituted being right wing in the 1930s, I eventually, with a few exceptions, kind of threw up my hands and realized that the definition of right wing that we got stuck with, even to this day, really is born of being anti-FDR. If you were anti-FDR, you were called right wing, regardless of your political position. So like getting back to the old right, J.T. Flynn, who we've talked about before, famous sort of muckraker, um, is considered one of the founders or the leading figures of the old right. He was the, I think, the executive director of the America First Committee. Um, and everyone tells me, go look at the, you know, at, at Flynn. I go look at Flynn. I, you know, he doesn't write for the American Mercury. He doesn't write for the Freeman. He writes for the New Republic. And he's like an economic populist writing for the New Republic. Um, or you can take about, you know, isolationism, which is another one of these things, which you talk about a lot as being a theme of the right. And I agree with you. It's a theme of the right. But it's, isolationism is also a very just American thing. Um, and so, like, you mentioned the America First Committee a bunch of times. And I learned a lot from it, and it's good. Um, but, like, the American First Committee had... Norman Thomas, <laughs> who you do mention, as for listeners who don't know, is uh, the leader of the American Socialist uh, Party. Uh, uh, Oswald Garrison Villard, who was like a longtime publisher or editor of the, the Nation. Charles Beard, John Dewey, Joseph Kennedy, Berard Baruch, and and Robert La Follette. They were all isolationists. Right. And I don't think, with the complicated case of La Follette, because he was a progressive Republican, um, you can say they're of the right. And so. Um, part of my sort of problem is that a lot of these things are, um, you know, as much a problem for the democratic party or much a problem for the liberals or of America writ, writ large, you know, and this is like one of my gripes about the way people use the word isolationist almost always just define, define right wingers. But if you look through American history, William Fulbright was a full blower isolationist. He's also crazy racist. Um, um, George McGovern runs a campaign, come home America. You know, uh, there's lots of isolationism on the left, but it's only deplorable in the sort of mainstream liberal historical narrative and journalistic narrative when it manifests itself on the right. Um, and I'll just give you one last example of this on page 25. Um, you're right, but the GOP was just one part of a roiling and fractious political landscape where economic bounty, technological innovation, and newfound social cultural freedom coexisted with some of the most atavistic and conspiratorial tendencies in the, nation, in the national psyche. And many of these atavisms have been spawned in reaction to the same progressive ideas that mainstream Republicans opposed. Equally striking in the distance in the 1920s between the popular Republicanism of Harding and Coolidge and the elitist contempt for democracy expressed by both traditionalist and libertarian intellectuals. Mm -hmm. As a mass membership organization, the Republican Party directed its appeal to the largest possible number of voters. It embraced women's suffrage and prohibition while struggling to thwart the growth of the Klan. How was the GOP struggling to thwart the growth of the Klan when, like, literally the Klan was basically the militant wing of the Democratic Party during this period? You see what I'm saying? And it's, it's like... Well, that's why it was fighting it. Well, As the Republican Party was fighting the Democratic Party, it was trying to thwart the struggle of the... Okay, that's not how I read it, but you see my, okay, that's fair. That's a totally fair point, but it's the, the, um, the larger point about struggling with things like racism or immigrant, or let's move fast forward because we didn't talk about McCarthy. Um, first of all, the much worse and most horrible red scare was the first red scare under Wilson, right? Um, and that kind of gets airbrushed out by liberal historians. And then the, the second red scare with McCarthy a lot of the people who did the most draconian, illiberal things were actually Democrats, right? McCarran is the guy who passes the Internal Security Act and that kind of right. thing. Um, and so I found the discussion of the right struggling with McCarthy very good, and I agree with it entirely. But it, there's kind of a bit of a one-hand clapping nature to some of this. Well, you're going to have to read my sequel, The Left. <laughs> <laughs> fair. Fair. For a treatment of all the issues you just mentioned, Jonah. Um, look, I mean, 
I'm not saying that none of these tendencies aren't present on the left. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should have been more explicit about that. My point is to discuss and acknowledge where members of the right fell on them. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, like you mentioned, you went through the list of all the progressives who were Mm -hmm. uh, members of America First, but there were a lot of right-wingers who were members of America First, including Herbert Hoover. Robert Taft never joined, but he was quietly encouraged, uh, right. encouraging of it. And the Buckley's yacht, as I mentioned, was called Sweet Isolation. Right. They were, so it was, a, it was a popular front, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the same is with racism. Uh, <laughs> that sure. you, can have, you can have racists of both the right and the left. One of the things I wanted to do in the book was show that there is an uh, under, undercurrent uh, throughout the history of the right. So... Um, that even if people pop up today and they say oh, the right under Donald Trump is all of these things, what I wanted, uh, all these nasty things, I wanted to show, well, there were figures on the right 100 years ago sure. who also believed in the same thing. So it's nothing, it's nothing new under the sun. Um, and in fact, some of the liberal reviewers think that I go too easy on the right. So it's mm-hmm. actually nice. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, a, a, a three bears type situation. You know, this porridge is too cold. This porridge is too hot. You know, uh, I have people saying, oh, you're excusing Reagan's racism. And, and okay, well, no, no, not really. But um, and he actually wasn't a racist. He wasn't a racist. Yeah, he wasn't. So that's just where I am. Um, so I, I think I agree with you that, yeah, a lot of progressives were on the uh, the wrong side of, of these issues, at least the way that I see them. And um, my point, my, my objective in this book was just to see wh- where the, the right dovetailed with them. I do think, though, um, the old right is important in understanding the roots of the modern conservative movement because many of the institutions and figures who came out of that movement after the war could trace their way, trace themselves back mm-hmm. to the old right. I mean, um, whether it's, uh, you know, human events basically was uh, anti-New Deal and anti-war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mentioned Buckley, who... Um, opposed entry into the war but then by the end of it and the onset of the cold war you know embraced a, what i call um engaged nationalist uh, foreign policy um <sighs> kirk and um uh, loved robert taft wrote a whole book about taft nisbet you know reading um albert j knox memoirs while he's on uh on tour of duty during the war you can kind of see these uh, seeds being planted. And so when they spring up mm-hmm. after the Cold War ends, it may not be as much of a surprise for, for a reader of my book. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I think that's all fair. I mean, I guess the, you know, the, you know I, I have the, because of my book, which let's just say got my first book, got a less generous reception than your book <laughs> i don't know if that's true i don't know i i, I mean I, know. I liked it uh, the, <laughs> I, don't, I didn't mean at this table <laughs> um, but um you know like there were there are just a bunch of things that i'm still holding paper on that 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 bother me greatly i've been listening to tablet magazine and some pbs and a bunch of uh, liberal foundations just come out with this series on father Coglin. Right. right. Um, and I've been listening to it and there's interesting stuff. There's great archival audio stuff in it. Um, but you know, I grew up hearing, you know, Coglin called the right wing radio priest. And then I start working on what, and you mentioned this about Coglin is that, you know, he was an early FDR supporter right. and his economic program was way to FDR's left. Um, and so people will say, well, he was right wing cause he was anti-Semitic. And I'm like, well, anti-Semitism is a real problem on the right. It's also a real problem on the left, you know? Right. And so there are a lot of these things well, that get, you know, it's sort of one of my core criticisms of, of, of liberal historiography and of, and of the left in particular is that when something bad happens in America that they can't ascribe to conservatives, they ascribe to America itself. Right. right? It's never... Progressivism is never in the dock, right? And um, and so one of the things that I just it, you know, sort of a Nightingale song kind of thing clangs off my ear is that this is that the I agree with you, and it's a really great telling about the right struggles with these sorts of things 
But like there are a bunch of times where I'm like, well, yeah, but the left was worse about this or the left was worse about that. And well, I often you know, have to remind people that George Wallace was a Democrat. Right. Right. <laughs> he no, was exactly. never a right. Republican. Can I say, um, I think some of these definitional issues uh, are are made more complicated by the fact that the extremes meet. Mm-hmm. Right. So Coughlin. Yeah. On economics, he was more radical than FDR. But he also wanted a distribution of state right. that many of the uh, integralist post-liberal Catholic thinkers today would like to see where, you know, the corporations are represented, that the corporate identities, not corporations, but the corporate identities of Americans are represented. Um, so Coughlin is to the extreme where the left and right meet. And an example of this, very similar, actually, to the America First stuff. I mean, I'm not drawing an explicit par- uh, parallel, uh, but I just would point to uh, people to the... Um, letter organized by the compact, the new, mm-hmm. uh, uh, electronic magazine journal, um, web journal, um, where it has signatories. It's called against the abyss. It's basically calling for America to, to put, uh, immense pressure on, um, peace negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. And it's signed by people on the right and on the left, but they tend to be on the furthest Mm-hmm. aspects of each right and so right. you see that same uh that same convergence that that was present i think throughout uh, throughout this history i mean in fact one of the uh points where it was clear that someone we've been discussing uh brent bozell um jr and triumph wouldn't coexist easily with the mainstream conservatism and national reviews when they basically embraced the anti-war movement in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And they said, you know what? The critics um, and also the Black Panther critics of America, they were right that America is fundamentally corrupt. And so, okay, or I don't know. I mean, I think Brent Bozell was pretty right-wing. I mean, he was, you know, <laughs> sure, sure, <laughs> he was, but, but he also happened to be on the same side as these left-wing groups. Yeah. So, so, I, so I, this gives us a chance to get a little philosophical here. Um, I've... I've, I've moderated or I, I, I've put some asterisks next to my opposition to the extremes meet thing. I used to like really beat up on it. Right. Um, because, you know, in there's a rich, again, getting back to sort of liberal historiography um, and political science, um, there's this rich tradition of making that argument. Right. And historically in the 20th century, the people who would make that argument, um, whether it was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. specifically or people of that stri- that stripe. Um, there's a little of this in Hannah Arendt. Um, there's a lot of this in sort of conventional sort of uh, political science. It's almost always done as a way to privilege elite establishment liberalism as the opposite of all bad things, right? So they'll say, you'll get stuff like, um, look, you know, uh, I'm neither, I'm not a communist and I'm not a fascist. And besides... Um, those two things, um, uh, the extremes meet, right? And they'll draw a circle on the board and they'll put themselves on the at 12 o'clock and the communists and the fascists at 6 o'clock, right? So, so again, privileging the sort of vital, cent- vital center liberals or whatever. Um, or they'll, um, they'll, they'll draw a thing on the board and draw a straight line and on the left side will be communism and on the right side will be fascism and they'll put themselves in the middle. Mm-hmm. Now, my standard line about this, which I'm, I'm about to, to say I concede your point on this, but my standard line on this for years when I was promoting my first book is that sort of nowhere else in life do we say that opposites meet, right? We don't say something so hot, it's cold, or something is so tall, it's short. I used to joke, well, you do say that bulldog puppies are so ugly, they're cute. But as a general proposition, um, extremes don't meet. And I used to quote Richard Pipes, who would say, look, the reality is, is that both Bolshevism and fascism were both um, heresies of Marxism, right? They're both statist things. And the original students of the original uh, communists in the, in the 20s and 30s, including Trotsky and these guys, would sort of concede the point where they would call things like fascism and later National Socialism right-wing socialism. And as a, as a defender of classical liberalism, I would say, well, you know, the right wing is an interesting word there, but so is the word socialism. Right. <laughs> and 
So I think, so this is where I can see the point. I agree with you these days that the, the extremes are meeting. And this may be a good place where we can sort of wrap up at least this installment. Um, this, doesn't this highlight the fundamental importance of the, whether you want to call it anti-statist or libertarian or whatever label you want to put on it, ethos of American conservatism? Because so long as you're anti-statist, Right, so long as you are for limited government, um, so long as, as as you quote in there, and I quote all the time, you know, you you agree with Calvin Coolidge in his speech on the Declaration of Independence that the propositions in the Declaration are final and you cannot move beyond them. Right, then there is no danger, whatever your cultural you know uh, uh, appetites or sympathies are, for becoming fascist or communist or anything like that, because you are not willing to let the state do the things that are essential for both communism and fascism to do. I mean, I, this is one of the reasons why I wrote liberal fascism was that, you know, our mutual friend, Charles Murray, when he came out with the bell curve, I was at AEI and I remember watching the local news promote a story about it where they were showing pictures from Nuremberg rallies about a new book raises, you know, specters of Nazism or whatever. And I was like, I, I know Charles Murray. I had just recently read, you know, you know, something about it like Charles Murray sincerely doesn't believe the government is qualified to collect your garbage the idea that he's going to put people in camps was was absurd and so this is like the the one reason why I think American conservatism is about more than just classical liberalism but once it stops conserving and protecting classical liberalism that sort of Buckleyite position of defending what's best about our country then there are no limiting principles that prevent it from going the way of sort of right-wing nationalism or coglinism or, you know, left-wing socialism or communism and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the thing that it is the safeguard that prevents the American conservative from being like a European conservative. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. I, maybe we shouldn't refer to extremes as much as the extreme, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. both of these awful ideologies, fascism and communism, exalt the state above the individual. And so I think it gets to the Americanness of American conservatism. That, that's just not present in our founding and right. in our country and in our political tradition. The American political tradition gives wide latitude for the individual and all the associations that lie in between the individual and the state. And so if you're an American conservative who wants to conserve that political tradition, it's a complicated one. Mm -hmm. it's maybe not all Lockean, it's not all Protestant, it's not all civic Republican. But it's a little bit of each of those things. And fundamentally, and this is what Buckley is saying, it, it, in that original quote we started off with, um, it has an enormous space uh, for the individual to work out his or her own life. And in fact, there are th that individual can claim rights against the state. Mm -hmm. That's what's in the document. Right, right. right, <laughs> it's, right. The, the Constitution is limiting the government and then uh, through the powers in, in, its, in its articles, but then in the Bill of Rights, it's limiting the government, the federal government, what they can do to the individual, right? Um, so that's, I think, what we're, what we're preserving. Um, and uh, I, I think when you look at the history that I talk about in the book, The Right, um, you see that it took us, uh, it's, those ideas have been there, but it's very easily distracted from that mm -hmm, by mm -hmm. the exigencies of politics or by um, romanticism and utopianism to think that we can remake the world in a more traditional way. Um, but those, the, the, like every utopia, it doesn't exist. On that, Matthew Connelly, we, we left off, left out a lot of things. Um, I deliberately didn't talk about Trump too much because... I didn't want to. Yeah, we basically stopped in 1980. I know. It's, so it's outrageous. We have, we have 40 <laughs> more years to cover. Well, I mean, I could keep going, but uh, <laughs> no. I, I think we should spare the listeners for now. Yeah, please. And we'll have you back to do the last 30 years of American conservatism. <laughs> um, again, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I hope you didn't find it too painful. And um, um, it's great to have you. Thank you, Jonah. All right. So uh, Matt Connetti has uh, left, literally left the studio. Um, I hope. Listeners enjoyed that. Um, uh, there's so much that we did not get to. I, I want to, I want kudos for my restraint and not spending the entire two hours on um, talking about neoconservatives. 
Uh, but we covered some of that stuff in, I think, his first appearance on The Remnant, which we can put a link to in the show notes. And um, I really do highly recommend the book. Um, my, uh, um, my, the criticisms I gave air to um, um, really don't detract from the value of the book, I think, at all. It's just sort of where I come from. And it's just a little strange because, like, as, as Matt alluded to, he's normally a pretty polemical writer. And um, you don't get um, that from the book. He is, I think he's trying to give a fair hearing um, to all of the different members in this um, wide coalition, while at the same time trying to, like, um, be clear where he comes from, at least at the end. Um, I have some other, you know, things I would love to sort of critically engage with the author about, but we'll have to save that for the next time. Um, and, uh, I really appreciate everybody, uh, uh, tuning in. And, um, again, the book is the right, the hundred year war for American conservatism. And, uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. All right, so I know we're—I don't know if we're running long or if we've just scratched the surface, so we haven't figured that part out yet. Um, but um, hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.